So what would you say are the definitive marks of a Christian? You know, how can you spot one? How do you know if you are one? Well, you know if you're a Christian if you have a fish on the back of your car. Maybe the really big one that sort of gobbles up Darwin. Your favorite restaurant is Chick-fil-A. You live in Texas or are planning to move to Texas. Maybe you buy a big fat Bible with all those study notes and then you wrap it in duct tape to make it look worn and authentic. You've participated in countless sword drills before you're ever able to even lift a sword. A few of you know what I meant when I said that. You know the Roman road, but you've never been to Rome. Your dating authority growing up was Christy Miller or Joshua Harris. You're planning your next vacation to Magnolia Market in Waco. (laughs) Or maybe the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Now, according to research, firm believers don't, in fact, have firm bodies. Christians, apparently, on average, are are not healthier, but actually heavier than the rest. And yes, Southern Baptists are sadly the worst Now, I think of newer generations, some of you are scoffing at those things. Of newer generations, you may know if you're a Christian if you love to drop phrases like social justice or missional or creation care, and then you nod approvingly when others say the same. Maybe you're concerned because our ministry guide doesn't advertise that it's printed on recycled cardstock. Or you love to quote Dorothy Sayers and Wendell Berry and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Tim Keller. You know, you prefer at the end of the day to call yourself a Christ follower, not a Christian. Well, who are the truly religious? For here's the thing, stereotypes, right, don't often hold. Sometimes it can be quite surprising who does and who doesn't believe. Those we expect to believe, those who might fit all the stereotypes, in fact, aren't believers. Whereas those who seem to break all the molds, they turn out to be the real believer. Right? So how do you spot the difference? Well, friends, that question brings us back this morning to our study in the book of Mark. I want to invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 24 to 30, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the seat back before you, you can find it on page 843, I'm pretty sure, page 843. Now last week, we saw in Mark how Jesus was once again in a scuffle, another scuffle with the religious establishment. They thought being acceptable before God was all about keeping man-made traditions and slavishly obeying sort of external regulations such as washings and, and above all, avoiding that which was unclean. But remember last week, Jesus said it's not, in fact, society around us that's the problem, but it's the sin inside of us. That's the problem. That's what makes us unclean. And now Jesus, having declared all foods clean is about to go to an unclean people and make them clean. So friends, with that, let's pick up the story. Mark 
chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. And from there he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now listen, if you grew up in church... I'm guessing this wasn't one of those Sunday school stories that your teacher loved to tell. All right, do you remember that story, that time when, when Jesus called that poor, suffering mother a dog? Right, that's my favorite one. Let's, let's tell that one again. That's probably not your own experience, which is surprising at one level because this is a story of a miraculous healing. Right? Jesus drives out the demon that's possessed this woman's daughter. And notice he doesn't even go to her. He doesn't touch her. He doesn't speak to her. Jesus just, he, he wills it and it happens. Right? We haven't actually seen a healing like this yet in Mark. So just when we think Jesus can't outdo himself, he does it right here. He does it with this very healing. The problem is, it's not the deliverance of the demon that that grabs our attention. It's the dialogue, right? That's what we're caught on. We're caught on the the conversation, not the casting out of this demon. And, And it seems at least odd, if not offensive. You know, but as perplexing as it appears, I think in this dialogue, Jesus is helping draw out what it looks like to be a genuine Christian, a true Christian, and it often comes, as we see, from the most like, unlikely, rather, of people. I think there's a lesson for us in the passage. It's this. Because none of us are deserving, desperate faith is the only faith that delights Jesus. Maybe you can sort of sum up the section. It's that because none of us are deserving, desperate faith is the only faith that delights Jesus. Right, but in order to get us to that point, I want us to ask two questions of our text. And these two questions are just going to serve broadly as the two main points, sort of our outline this morning. And the first question is this. Is God discriminating? Is God discriminating? Second question, is faith demeaning? Is faith demeaning? Well, to that first question, is God discriminating? Is God discriminating? You know, this question is what's going to get us to that enigmatic verse 27. But in order to get there, we first have to appreciate some of the scene. 
So remember, last week marked another contentious run-in between Jesus and the religious establishment. Right? They've sent multiple delegations now from Washington. They're seeking to build their case against Jesus. He's touching lepers, dining with tax collectors. He's healing on the Sabbath, even declaring all foods clean. Right? They've got, by now, all the evidence they need against Jesus. Right? Subpoenas are certainly forthcoming. And of course, Jesus hasn't just drawn the attention of the religious establishment, but of the political elite as well. We know from Mark 6, Jesus is on Herod's radar. And if there's one thing that history teaches, it's that paranoid tyrants like Herod, those aren't the guys you trifle with. Now, eventually, these two blocks are going to conspire against Jesus. And he's beginning to feel that noose tighten, but it's not yet time. And so Jesus here, he goes underground, so to speak. He goes incognito. And we read there in verse 24 that he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon are Gentile lands, right? He flees Israel. He goes across the border. He goes north into these Gentile lands. And really, 724 all the way through 810, that marks... In the book of Mark, the only sustained ministry that Jesus has to the Gentiles. The rest of the book, by and large, all consumed with the ministry among the Galileans for the first half and then on his way to Jerusalem. This section right here, it's his one sort of excursion to Gentile lands. And again, it continues through 810. But these aren't just any Gentile lands. This isn't like an American traveling north up to Canada. Jewish historian Josephus refers to Tyre as as one of Israel's most bitter enemies. You see, they had sided against the Israelites in an earlier set of wars, so there's no love lost between these two groups. Now, if you're Jesus, this probably isn't a bad strategy. If you want to get lost as a Jew, this would be the right place to go. It might be a bit like slipping down into Mexico and heading into some of the cartel lands where local law enforcement in the States may may not seek to track you and and follow you. And so he goes up and we read he enters a house, verse 24, right? Was it, was it a Jewish home? There were a few Jews and sort of half Jews in the area. Was it a Gentile home, some Airbnb? I don't know. It doesn't say what home it was. It doesn't say other than he didn't want anyone to know. Now, the other time we see that expression of Jesus not wanting others to know, it's forward in nine, chapter nine, verses 30 and 31. And We read that expression when Jesus wants to teach his disciples privately. So I think it's likely that Jesus at one level is trying to escape the heat. It's got a little hot there in Jerusalem, or out in Jerusalem, but up in Galilee. So he's trying to escape the heat, and he's going up to this place because he needs to teach his disciples. He needs to teach them privately, right? They are still, as we saw last week, without understanding, chapter 7, verse 18. And yet... We read in verse 24 that he still, he could not be hidden. Or as the Christian Standard Bible says, he couldn't escape notice. Right? Word got out, even in these Gentile lands, that Jesus was in town. Now the point here is not that like Jesus was terrible at hide and seek. Right? He would fail sniper school because this guy just can't conceal himself. No, the point is Jesus' immense popularity. Right? His presence couldn't be kept secret. This guy's a star wherever he goes. Now, I wonder if you know the name of Shah Rukh Khan. 
Just think, ever heard of that name? He's known as the Bad Shah of Bollywood, the most famous actor out of India, known literally by billions. But my guess is that even in this sort of global internet age, my guess is you've never heard of this guy. Because for so many, fame doesn't cross cultures, right? Fame is still bound by borders, but not with Jesus, right? Even his enemies are in awe of him. They're talking about him. And so we read in verse 25 that immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, of course, we read those verses and immediately our heart goes to the woman, right? Her anguish over her own daughter's condition. You know, there's a husband, as not mentioned, perhaps she's a widow too, right? Just pulling at all those heartstrings. But a Jew would read this and would recoil, right? This is, these verses read as sort of a crescendo of demerit, She has, you know know that expression, three strikes and you're out. She's got four strikes, like an extra one just for good measure, right? First, she's a woman. Rabbis didn't associate with women. She's a Gentile, right? So she's unclean. That's the second strike against her. But she's not just any Gentile. She's from Tyre, right? That bitter enemy of the Jews, strike three. And not only that, her daughter has an unclean spirit, strike four. And then add to this the following question, Who's the most prominent woman in the Old Testament from Phoenicia? Now, most of you are like, Brad, I have no idea. Some of you will be like, ah, Jezebel. Remember the wicked Jezebel? She's the most prominent woman in the Old Testament from Phoenicia. So you read the story and you're like, man, there's no way this one's going to end up well. This is not going to turn out well. A proper Jew couldn't fathom a less likely recipient of mercy and grace. Right? Her need would be beneath the dignity of any respectable rabbi. Right? Even Levi, the tax collector, is probably raising his eyebrow at this woman. And so we come to Jesus' response, verse 27. She's begging him for help, and he effectively gives her a parable. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now listen, there's been a lot of ink spilled over these verses, right? Some say Jesus is really just being playful. He sort of said this with a wry smile and kind of winked at the end of it. Others will say he's just quoting a common proverb, but he doesn't really buy into it, almost like he's setting up a straw man. But just to be clear, I don't think there's anything in the text that supports either of those options. We don't know of any proverb like this in in ancient texts and history. Jesus doesn't actually contradict anything he says. I don't think it's a straw man. I think to enter into and sort of understand the parable, rather, we have to enter into it. And we got to look at, okay, what's he saying? Well, children, right? Children in the Bible are often just a way to refer to the Jews, right? Deuteronomy 14, you, referring to the Jewish people, are the sons or the children of the Lord your God. Isaiah 1, the Lord says of Israel, I have reared children and brought them up. Hosea 11, right? Out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to the Jewish people, right? Children is a reference to Jews. Now, bread is a reference to the blessings of the kingdom, 
right? First, the blessings of the word, but then that word made flesh, Jesus himself, right? The bread of life, that bread whose body would be broken for us. Now it comes to the dogs. You know, we hear dogs, maybe we're thinking man's best friend, right? We can all get our famous favorite dogs, right? Old Yeller, Lassie, I don't know, Chance, and that other dog in Homeward Bound, whatever it might be. Right? You've got, we think of our dogs, we have our wonderful images, right? But to Jews, dogs were a lot more like cockroaches. They were sort of wild and they were mangy. Mostly they were unclean, right? They roamed in garbage heaps and, and sewers for f- food. Now, if you've got a study Bible, it may note that the, the word for dog there is sort of the diminutive, like little puppies or maybe pets. And so they're saying that sort of softens it. But there's actually a lot of diminutives, and none of it really softens, because when you look at the scriptures, dog is always a term of reproach, right? What does Goliath say to David, 1 Samuel 17, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Or what does Jesus say in Matthew 7, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs? Paul, in Philippians 3, 2, refers to his opponents as dogs. And in context, the dog refers to the sick girl, more broadly sort of to the woman, most broadly just to the Gentile people. So you understand Jesus right here, he's doing what we think he's doing. He's making a distinction between children, Jews, and between dogs, Gentiles. And he's saying it's not right to take the bread, the blessing of the kingdom, which is for the Jews, and give it to the Gentiles. Which strikes us as rather rude of Jesus. You know, it's one thing to pick on the religious elite, right? We can, we can be with Jesus when he does that. But I mean, this is a poor, distraught mother. Nothing like kicking someone when they're down. You know, if you forgive the pun, just like throw the woman a bone. Hence the question, right? Is God discriminating? Is he discriminating? Because I recognize in our age, To discriminate on the basis of gender or sexuality or race and ethnicity, right? That's the cardinal sin of our day. And God certainly seems to be discriminating between Gentile and Jew. And at one level, the answer is yes. He absolutely does. He makes a distinction between Jew and Gentile, right? In the Old Testament, God has uniquely set his love upon Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14, 14 and 15, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Right? It's what Lee read earlier from Romans 9. Right? To the Jews belonged the promises and the covenants and and the law. Right? All the blessings. God had elected Israel. Now, at this point, some of us are crying unfair. You know, but this is where we've got to be very careful of placing ourselves sort of in the judge's bench and putting God in the dock and demanding that he answer our questions. Because at the end of the day, fairness is simply getting what we deserve. And for those who have rebelled against God, rejected 
his way. We've chose to live our own way, right? Chose to live for our own gain, to do what pleases us as opposed to what pleases our maker. Fairness, according to the Bible, for such people, that fairness is judgment. It's to be judged for our wrongs, right? That any are saved, that any are saved, right? That's an expression of his mercy, of his kindness, right? This God owes us nothing, right? We owe him everything. And so to pardon any single person, but that's not unjust, that's a miracle. It's a divine expression of his extravagant mercy. What did we read in Romans 14, 9, 14 earlier? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? Paul anticipates the question. By no means. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, the chosen receive grace they don't deserve while the willfully guilty receive the justice they do deserve and in fact demand from God. So in verse 27, Jesus is recognizing, yes, she's a Gentile, and the blessings of the kingdom are first to be offered to the Jews. Right? This bread, he's saying, it's not for you. See, he's making a salvation historical argument. What does Jesus say in Matthew 15, 24? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's why you'll notice when Jesus is in these, these verses up through 8, 10, he doesn't teach, which is astounding because as you've been following on a mark, Jesus is teaching all the time. He's constantly teaching. Over and over again, he's teaching more than 15 times. It's the defining mark of his ministry. And yet we get into the section and he doesn't teach anything. He doesn't gather crowds. He doesn't set up a pulpit in city squares. He doesn't teach. Because he had come for the Jew first. Right? Let the children be fed first. Now that's our first hint of hope. That word first, you see what it does? It keeps the door open. It suggests that maybe there's a second. Maybe there's something else, something to follow. That word first in verse 27 makes all the difference in the world. Right? Take that word out and reread what Jesus says. Let the children be fed, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Right? Remove that word and there's no hope. But first means Jesus has left that door open just a crack and as we'll see in verse 27, she is going to throw her shoulder at that door as he cracks it open. And she's going to push and shove with all of her might to see that she gets through. Because nobody who genuinely desires grace is ever denied by God. Is God sovereign? Yes. Did he choose a people in Israel? Yes. Are any denied by God who genuinely desire grace? No, not a one. And for her response, in verse 28, Jesus is going to heal her daughter. Because the plan all along is that the Gentiles would be included in God's plan. So is God discriminating at one level? Yes, he is. But no at another level. Because what was reserved for Israel, he's now making available and free to all. And that's what this passage is meant to highlight. That's what it's meant to begin to show us. 
Right? It's what was promised in Genesis 12 that Abraham would be a blessing not just to Israel but to the nations. Isaiah 42, 1-9. The son is the servant who's not just going to bring salvation to the Jews, right, but be a light to the nations, Isaiah 42. It's what Paul preaches in Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for Jew, then to the Gentile. Right? He's the inclusive Savior. The inclusive Savior. We see it here. I mean, just think to the, to the end of Mark, the climax of the book. Who is the first one that recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's a Roman centurion. It's not a Jew that makes that definitive profession about Jesus. Right? What does Peter say when Cornelius, a Gentile, hears He says in Acts 10, now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So you can imagine how encouraging then this story would be to Mark's Roman audience. He's writing in Rome in days of great persecution, likely under Nero. And they're seeing in this woman, hey, you know what? We were part of God's plan all along. Jesus, he wasn't ignoring us, right? He, he was the one who first opened the door to us. We see it with this woman. He opens the floodgates. He began to welcome the Gentiles in. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Jew, right? You're a Gentile, which I assume is going to be the vast majority of us. Recognize this woman, she's our history. We're not the disciples. We weren't part of the Jewish people. This woman reflects us. We were outside of the promises. Not a one here in that sense had any claim on God's goodness. And yet in Christ, Jesus ministered mercifully to this woman. And so put into motion the gospel that would come to us, come to you and come to me. You see, Jesus isn't just some provincial God, right, dealing with some backwater people in Israel. No, he has come, and Mark wants us to know he has come to be Savior of the world, of all. Friends, it's why we share the gospel. It's why we take the gospel across borders. It's why we take the gospel across seas. Right? Not because we simply want to see communities with better infrastructure, right? better water, better housing, better hospitals, or what have you. It's not because we want to see better schools built and education, though those are all good things. No, we come with a message, with a message that any can be forgiven and saved of their sins. Right? He is the Lord of the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, and Jesus will have a people for himself. The point of the gospel, what Mark's readers are beginning to understand, what the disciples haven't quite grabbed and caught on to yet, is that the gospel is going to make saints of sinners, so that they would then become true worshipers. Right, as John Piper put it, missions exist because worship doesn't. So we go to the nations and we share to make such sinners genuine worshipers. And friends, this is the message that was worthy of Jesus' life. Is that a message worthy of your life? Do you value the message the same way Jesus values that message? You know, if you do, how do you then support the work of the gospel to all the nations? Do you give to it? Do you pray for it? 
realize, you know, we list our supportive workers in the back of our membership directory, not just sort of to make it easy and simple to find them, not for administrative purposes, but you can pray for them. You can pray for those who are overseas, taking the ministry of the gospel to the nations. Right, do you come on Sunday night where we get to hear updates from these workers and pray for them like we did Hans and Stacy Hutchins this last Sunday night? You know, Michael and Hannah Abraham are going to be back from the Middle East in about two weeks, and so we're going to have a meal um, on a Sunday after the service. You can hear from them, hear about their work. You can pray for them. We're going to be something doing something on Wednesday, December the 6th with the MUDs, their time in England after the prayer service on Wednesday night. Right, you can hear and pray. Those are some practical things you can do. Have you thought about going to the nations? like Samantha Burgess is preparing now to do, like the Gilstraps are hoping to do. Right? The reality is, the Jews would have seen this woman as a dog and beneath their dignity. I wonder if by your own inactivity and lack of care, you see the nations as beneath your own dignity. You know, they're terrorists, uneducated tribesmen. And though you don't say it, Behind that is the belief that somehow they're undeserving. They're beneath your effort. Oh, friend, this morning, if you have a heart that is cold to the lost, know that your problem finally isn't a lack of compassion. It's misunderstanding Christ. It's misunderstanding Jesus. A hardened sort of heart, a hardness to the gospel that has sort of formed in all of your sort of spiritual arteries Right, left unaddressed, that kind of hardness can prove fatal. For those who have received the mercy of God, display that same mercy to others. Which means, friends, if you're not displaying that same mercy to others, it means very well you may not have experienced it. Right, if you're not displaying the mercy of God to others as Christ does to this woman... Is it because you haven't experienced it? You have nothing to display because you haven't known it. You know, the woman may have been beneath the dignity of any respectable rabbi, but she's not beneath the dignity of Jesus. He will restore her, and he'll restore her and her daughter to the dignity for which God intended them. That's the beautiful thing. And it's interesting because that, that word in verse 30 for the child lying in bed, it literally translates the woman, the, the daughter is cast in bed, thrown in bed. It's the same verb that's used of the bread being cast or thrown before the dogs. I think that's Mark's way of making clear that this woman has received the bread of life. What was intended first for the Jews has now been cast to her, and it's seen there in her daughter healed and cast on the bed. She's now become a partaker. She is now a part of God's promises. Already in Jesus, he is recreating a new people of God, a people bound not by borders, but by common belief in this man. Friends, that brings us to our second question, and admittedly a briefer question. Is faith demeaning? Is faith demeaning? Now I raise that because of the woman's response in verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
it strikes us a bit demeaning because she seems to accept her status as a dog, as one who's unworthy, right? And that's not what we're taught to do. We're supposed to defend our dignity. We're supposed to stand up for ourselves. If there's hate speech, we're supposed to call it out, right? That's not what she does, though. Right? We would never let someone like Jesus on a college campus. Right? This guy's demeaning. He's devaluing others. His language is dangerous, even violent. That's what we would say. But what Jesus has done to her it's what he does to all of us when we come into contact with his word. Right? He's testing us, testing our faith. And the question becomes, to her as well as to you and to me, will she be ready to humbly accept her lowly position? Will she do that? Will she humbly accept her position or will she scoff at it? How dare he say, I'm not worthy? Does he not know who I am? My friends, that's the question the gospel puts before every one of us. Because right, in our sin, we're all dogs. And I have to admit, this, I've been a little scarred this week because you know the song, Who Let the Dogs Out? Guy Wilcox has been wandering around the office saying, Who let the dogs in? Jesus. Woof, woof. All week long. But it's actually kind of true. That's why it's a little bit unnerving because now I can't read this text without thinking of guy um but the point is right this is what we we're all dogs we're all unworthy right none of us this morning not a one of us is a claim upon god's goodness god as i said it doesn't owe us anything right there's not a soul here in a position to make demands upon this god so is faith demeaning well in one sense yes it is because it calls us to make a very honest and difficult assessment of ourselves. We are not worthy. We have problems, problems beyond us, problems we can't fix. And we can't look within. We can't harness our better selves. There's nothing better in here. As we thought about last week, this is all a polluted well. I can draw out more, but it's not going to help me. And until we're ready to accept that verdict of Jesus, we can never appreciate the benefits of his vindication. Until we see ourselves as unworthy sinners, we'll never appreciate the worthiness then of our Savior. But notice this woman, she concedes. She concedes the priority of the Jewish people, but she still persists. She still persists. She's not going to be intimidated by an apparent insult. What does she do? Verse 25, she falls at his feet. Right? She takes the form of a supplicant. There's no notion of pride in that posture, no self-reliance. So by bowing, she's visibly displaying his authority, her absolute dependence upon him for help. Notice she calls him, what does she call him in verse 28? She calls him Lord. I wonder if you caught that. You know, that's a, that means more than simple respect. That expression, Lord, is pregnant with meaning. And what's remarkable, you keep reading through Mark, no one calls her Lord. Or rather, no one calls Jesus Lord but this woman. In all of Mark, she's the only one to do it. The only one to see him, it seems, at the moment for who he truly is. Right? She grasps what the Pharisees will never grasp and what the disciples have yet to grasp. Yet she grasps it. This woman 
Jesus is helping us. See, she has amazing faith. And she's persistent faith because she knew her need was great. And yet greater still was this man before her. She knew there was no merit in her that was going to warrant Christ's help. Right? She couldn't appeal to her parents. She can't appeal to her country, to some flag. She can't appeal to her life. Right? She's a Gentile. She has no claim upon a Jewish rabbi. So what does she do? She doesn't appeal to her merit. She appeals to his mercy. Not her merit, but his mercy. Right? Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Friends, you want to know how to spot a Christian, a true one? It's this kind of humility. This kind of humility. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hebrews eleven six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. You see, all true Christians come through the same gate. And it's that gate of need. Of need. See, the Pharisees thought they deserved grace. And so often, you and I, we do the same. We think we deserve grace. But she knew that we all come to God not through the gate of our own deserving, but only through that gate of desperation. That's why this story is juxtaposed over the story before. The Pharisees deserving for the way in which they keep the law. This woman who's outside the law has no claim upon the law, and yet she is the one who expresses genuine faith. It's to highlight that contrast. Because there's not another entrance other than through this gate of desperation. Right? There's no VIP entrance, not any of the accoutrements of wealth or of status or of education. Those don't count anything before God. What she lacks in qualifications, and she has none, she makes up for in magnificent faith. She recognizes that Christ sees not human status. What Christ sees is human need. And she has it. And she knows that he can answer it. You know, D.L. Moody would say that Jesus sent no one away empty except those full of themselves. So she pleads with him. She begs him in verse 26. And the tense of that just suggests she begged repeatedly, ongoing. She was pushy. Right? Pushy, she knew that he alone could deliver Right? She knocked at his door. She didn't knock at any other door. She knocked at his door because she knew the answer to her problems lay with the man behind that door. And that's where she went. That's who she had to have. So when he said first and just cracked that door open, she threw herself at it. She would have him. Right? Like Jacob who wrestles all night with God. She wrestles with Jesus. And so when he gives her an opening, she takes it. She shoves her way in. She says, so what if I'm a dog? I'll eat the crumbs. I don't care if they're crumbs. I know this Jesus. And whatever crumbs he has, they can satisfy me. That's what she knew. She's seen that in him. And he commends her. Right? Because none of us are deserving. 
which is why desperate faith is that only faith that delights Jesus. Or to put it, none of us are holy, which is why humble faith is the only faith that honors Jesus. Oh, friend, you don't need to dress yourself up this morning before coming to Jesus. The only qualification is desperation, right? Not your merit, but his mercy. For on the cross, Jesus died in the stead of sinners. That's his mercy displayed. He didn't ask you to come and to bring your best before him. He said, it won't be enough. Take my word for it. Not even close. But Jesus' righteousness is enough. And he will die on the cross in your place. And if you would have the humility to recognize your need and to see that need met in this man, Jesus, and humble yourself by repenting of your sin, acknowledging your worthlessness before this worthy Savior and holy God, and you turn from those sins and trust in him, this one who was raised from the dead, who walked out of the grave, proof he had conquered sin and death, proof he was everything he said he was, and he still is today, then you could be saved of your sins. You could know this Savior. This is the gospel. This is why Christ came. He didn't come to stroke your ego. He came so you could know how you could be reconciled with God. And if you want to think more about that, Talk to me afterward. I'm down here. Talk to someone at the door. Talk to the friend you came with. Right? That's why Jesus came. That's why Mark wrote this book. And friend, you may feel this morning like you were the least likely candidate of God's grace. And if that's you this morning, I need you to know you're in the best of company. You couldn't be in a better place as the least likely candidate of God's grace. I mean, the disciples, common fishermen, no theological training, not the guys you would pick to take the message of the gospel to the nations. The apostle Paul, who goes to the Gentiles, a terrorist of the early church. Augustine, one of the great fathers of the early church. Himself, tremendous mind, even more mistresses, lived for hedonism and pleasure, and God saved him. Right? Who is, who is Martin Luther? But a monk in the very church that denied the gospel, and yet he's the one that would help the recovery of the gospel. William Carey, a cobbler. John Newton, a slave trader. You know, Chuck Colson, Watergate, scandalous in prison. All, you might say, unlikely people, but God delights in the unlikely ones. So if you're feeling unlikely, join the club. Because the great irony is that this dog is demonstrating to the children of Israel what is genuine saving faith. She's demonstrating it. Right? She's happy with the scraps. Jesus is going to give her a seat at the table. A recognition of our poverty is essential to receiving his wealth. Only a humble man can receive a holy God like this. Friends, that's the mark of a genuine Christian. So I have to ask you, where does that leave you this morning? Trusting in your merit? Or throwing your shoulder against the door of his mercy? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your mercy. Lord, you have given us what we didn't deserve. You have, if we admit it, even opened our eyes to those things we weren't even looking for. Because in your kindness, 
You steal us from the fully and foolishness of our sins and you set us on the proper path. You reveal to us the goodness of Jesus. God, we pray that you do that even more this morning. Do that on those who have become cold and callous to the wonder of Christ. Do that on those who have never received Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.